Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Today's sermon is going to be a little different than most of the sermons that I do because I don't want to spend as much time reflecting specifically on the reading today. And that's something I like to do. I think it's good to do uh, where I break down the text and relate it and tell you about how it has something to do with Jesus's death and resurrection. Um, I'm not going to do that today. Instead, I want to use today to summarize everything we've studied in Genesis for over the past year or so. And, and that's uh, our reading today, right? Uh, Genesis 50 is the final uh, reading from uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis is 50 chapters. And so it kind of fits the bill now for us to spend some time summarizing what we've experienced through this book. And one of my seminary professors uh, would become filled with righteous anger when the young seminarians would suggest things like the Old Testament was a book of rules and laws and the New Testament was a book filled with grace and mercy. He would get red in the face. Uh, you could see the veins popping out of his forehead um, and he would say something to the effect of, there is only one God, and this God does not have a split personality disorder. And so today, I want to show you and remind you once again that God does not have a split personality disorder, and review the fact that Genesis is fundamentally a book of mercy. And then I want to zoom out on that wider point and then uh, hammer it home for you uh, by looking not just in the minutia of one chapter, but by reviewing all of the chapters for you. Right, And our study started in Genesis at the very beginning, Genesis 1, where, where God made the world. It was supposed to be good. Every little piece of it God called good and very good. Humanity was supposed to live and flourish and be in relationship with God, but our forefathers were infected with pride and arrogance, and they rebelled against God and God's good intentions. And so what was a good and verdant world? It turned sour and it turned rotten infected with death and sadness and expulsion from God's good graces. That's Genesis 1 through 3. And then we saw on this side of that expulsion from God's good graces, we saw um, brothers murdering each other. We saw people building towers uh, to try and usurp uh, heaven and overthrow God. And God was so distraught about how bad things had gotten that he went to wipe the slate clean and start over with that massive flood. But he actually caught a glimpse of what the world could be like when one man lived a humble, if imperfect, life. And so this man Noah, uh, God saved that man and his family and promised them that despite everything wrong with the world, uh, he would not destroy it uh, like he did with a flood, but next time he would try to save it. And that's Genesis chapters 4 through 11. And so what happens next is that God chooses one man to work with, a childless 75-year-old wandering Aramean moon worshiper, uh, and he makes him a promise. God says to this random person for all intents and purposes, trust me and I will build you a family so great it will become a nation that blesses the world. And that promise, it seems so far-fetched and so grandiose, but Abraham believes that promise. He believes it imperfectly, of course, but he believes it nonetheless. 
And uh, despite a life of sort of roller coaster morality, um, he lives underneath this promise and actually trusts that it's true. And so as roaming armies threatened his family and wicked cities uh, were destroyed around him, God protected Abraham and his wife Sarah. And at the age of 100, when everyone had written off uh, some sort of progeny for him, God blessed him with a miraculous child. And that's Genesis 2 through 25. Excuse me, Genesis 12 through 25. And that miraculous son Isaac inherited this promise for a nation that would bless the entire world. He would go on to have uh, some of his father's fickle roller coaster morality and a fickle roller coaster faith, but he still had the faith. And he kept the faith in God's promise uh, despite famines and the threat of regional kings and all sorts of things. And so Isaac would go on to have twin sons, the younger of whom would be the next person to take uh, God's promise as the baton was passed from generation to generation. And that story is from Genesis 25 to 28. And that, that younger twin son, a man named Jacob, lived a life where the moral failures of his fathers were amplified and magnified. Deception and lying and trickery, those were all plays in Jacob's playbook, and he executed those plays very well. But if the sins of his fathers were magnified uh, in Jacob's life, well, so was the grace of God, and so was the, the richness and the deepness of, his rela- of the relationship Jacob had with God. And through a number of near-death experiences and humiliations, uh, Jacob is saved by God's frequent interjections into his life. Uh, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons, which is the ancient Near East equivalent of winning the family lottery. They are hot-headed and full of youthful impertinence, but each one will eventually grow into their own family, becoming a nation over time with 12 tribes, like a nation with 12 states, a country with 12 states. And the story of that is all in Genesis 28 through 37. But then in Genesis 37, a tragedy befalls this family. One of those 12 brothers is singled out by the other 11 for murder. Um, And although their minds are changed the last moment when a slave trader comes along, uh, they still are filled with hatred for this brother. And so they sell their brother for silver. They pocket the profits and their brother is sent away into a great evil empire. And uh, the brothers lie to their father, deceiving their father, thinking, hey, the son is dead at the hands of a wild animal. And so the father of these 12 sons is sent into a tailspin of grief. But the story of that son who was sold away into slavery uh, to the evil empire, it's not over. Because that son, through his connection with God and through his righteous lifestyle, he navigates all of these pitfalls like false accusations and unjust imprisonment until finally he saves the empire from starvation and famine, becoming the king's right-hand man as a result. And so the son sold into slavery and left for dead and abandoned has, by God's help, risen to become the most practically powerful man in the entire ancient world. And eventually this great famine forces the 11 wicked brothers to seek help from the evil empire, and they go to beg for food from their rejected brother, But once this righteous brother sees the repentance of these 11 wicked brothers, their grief over their past actions, their repentance, he forgives them and he saves them from the famine too, opening storehouses of grain for them when the world is without food. And so these brothers are forgiven, their relationship is mended, and the promise of God is that this family, broken and now reunited, will become a powerful, blessed nation that continues to make its way on to the next generation of people. And that story is Genesis 37 through 50. 
And so that's Genesis, right? In a nutshell, one page, uh, one and a half pages in sermon notes here. Um, but, but that's Genesis, you know, the world is not as, as it was intended to be. And instead of wiping the plate clean, God is going to save the world through a promise he made to a backbiting, morally fickle, uh, deceptive, murderous, hot-headed family. God is going to use that family whose only redeeming quality is that they didn't turn away when God offered them a promise that seemed too good to be true. So, you know, this is the story of God. He works with backbiting, morally fickle, deceptive, murderous, hot-headed people like the people in Genesis, but also the people like you and me, whose only redeeming quality is that we take God at his word when he offers us a promise that is too good to be true. You know, the theological term we have for this, taking up God on his promise, even though it seems too good to be true, um, that word the theologians use, it's a very fancy word, um, that word is faith. <laughs> I'm kidding, it's not that fancy. But, but that's what we talk about when we have faith, that uh, God makes extraordinary offers to us that seem too good to be true, and yet we believe it anyway. That's what we mean when we talk about faith. And to emphasize the point here that the God of the Old Testament is good for his promises if we take him at his word and believe what he says, to emphasize that point, the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews has this comment on the book of Genesis. He says that men that we've been, and women that we've been spending time with over the past year, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and women like Sarah and Rebecca and Leah, we read it in our bulletin today. What, what does the author of Hebrews have to say about the people like them? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on earth, dot, dot, dot. Therefore, a little further down, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Not just a city like Jerusalem, mind you, says the author of Hebrews, but a heavenly city. They trusted in God's promises even when they wouldn't be fulfilled in their lifetime. Here's an example of how that works out, right? What does the author of Hebrews say about Joseph? By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, we read about that in the reading from Genesis, right? That's the end, the very end of Genesis there. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So even the very last thing that Joseph does at the end of his life, uh, to say, I'm dying and when I die, um, keep my bones, and there will come a time when the people of Israel will will return to that land because God promised and said so. Uh, take my bones with you when you leave. You know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. These are the principal characters of Genesis. All of them believed in a promise that would come to a fruition after their death, the creation of a family nation that would bless the world, which makes them again like us. We also believe in promises that will come true after our death. Uh, promises like the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so it turns out that the promised family, um, it, you know, now that we have the benefit of hindsight, this promised family promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, it's more than just the nation of Israel, right? Um, it's more than just people of the Hebrew ethnicity. God wasn't just saying, I'm going to turn you into an ethno-nation state. 
The book of Romans articulates that through a shared faith in the promise of God, you and I are like engrafted branches on Abraham's family tree. Do you know what engrafted branches are? This is a thing that some people can do. Um, it's a technically difficult technique. I wouldn't recommend it, but if you want to um, sort of help a tree grow, you can cut off branch of, of a fruit tree, and then you can put a healthy branch onto where that um, wounded part was cut off, and you can wrap it and tie it up, and the tree will actually uh, meld and, and welcome the new branch, and it will start to feed the new branch, and the new branch will start to grow and produce fruit again. And so it's a way of helping your, your trees kind of grow and become um, bigger and better. And so in Romans, St. Paul says, we are like engrafted branches on Abraham's family tree. Um, what makes part, someone part of Abraham's family is not their DNA or their heritage, it's their faith. And so anybody who believes in the promises of God in the year 2021, you know, there's something like 2 billion of us, uh, you know, in the world these days. Well, they are all sons and daughters and great, great, great grandchildren of Abraham. And through, uh, you know, through the church, through Jesus's death and resurrection specifically, God has really fulfilled this bargain that he started with Abraham back in Genesis 15. There is a nation of people um, who would call him their forefather. And, you know, a bunch of us just happen to be sitting in this room right now, having a bit of a family reunion, as it were, of people who um, trust and believe in the promises of God. And so the promise that God made to this family, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to the rest of them, um, that promise that God made to this family was a future nation that would bless the world. You know, and God has not blessed us in that same way, right? God hasn't promised you or me specifically that our children will grow and become this great nation. Uh, the one exception to that in our church, by the way, maybe Bud and Grace Carnes, they have so many grandchildren. I don't know how they keep track of them. And great grandchildren too. It's insane. God has really blessed them. Maybe they're going to have a nation one day, but, but not the rest of us normally, right? Um, because God has given us different promises, um, but just because they're different promises doesn't mean they aren't foreshadowed in Genesis. Um, that the God who makes and keeps promises, um, he was hinting a long time before Jesus Christ came around about the promises that would come to us, um, right? Because even though, um, you know, God has promised uh, for the defeat of Satan and all the powers that are arrayed against us that keep us from God and seek to interject themselves from our relationship to God and to do damage to that relationship, all of those forces... Well, um, what did uh, what what did what promise did, did God make to uh, to Eve back in Genesis chapter three, right? That her son, her seed, would bruise the head of the snake, would stomp on it, and crush the head of the skull of the serpent, serpent, and that's of course Jesus Christ, right? So even though God's promises to His family aren't for us, there are other promises hinted at in Genesis. Um, right? God's promise to defeat uh, Satan and all the powers of this world, that's Genesis 3. God's promise to save the world through one man's uh, faith, that's Noah and the ark, Genesis 6. God's promise to save the world instead of destroying it again, uh, that was Noah and the ark again, but that was Genesis chapter 8 on the other side when he gives the rainbow as a promise and a gift. God's promise to expand blessings beyond uh, ethnic borders and national boundaries, that's Genesis 17, that's God's covenant with Abraham. God's promise for our resurrection from the dead, 
The author in Hebrews today, very interesting, I don't know if you caught this, the author of Hebrews to say today says that the point of Genesis 22, which is the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, um, is that Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead, that it was at least a possibility. So he didn't fear offering his son um, on the table as a sacrifice because he knew that God was powerful enough to raise the dead. So that's Genesis 22 right there. Genesis 28, right? That's the dream of Jacob's ladder. What's in that dream? The promise of God's physical presence and help in our time of need, that God will be with us wherever we go. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's Genesis 28. God's promise to find a solution to the conflict of justice and mercy. Well, that's foreshadowed in Genesis 34 with the tragic story of Tamar and the prince of Shechem. God's promise to forgive sins, that's Joseph the Christ figure and his brothers in Genesis 50 and a couple other places earlier before that. And so, friends, these promises, these are not promises in the abstract. Each and every promise finds its ultimate meaning and fulfillment and grounding and collateral in the death of Jesus Christ and his following resurrection. Genesis, you see, is the earthly incarnation of the cosmic accomplishments of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I'm going to say that again because I thought it sounded good when I wrote it. Genesis is the earthly incarnation of the cosmic accomplishments of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Everything good that comes from uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday that's of cosmic significance, you can find earthly examples of it all over Genesis. Mercy and forgiveness in the defeat of evil, Jesus' death and resurrection. The forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead, Jesus' death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit, the salvation of the world instead of destruction, the international non-ethnic intention of God's blessing, it's in Genesis, but also it comes to fruition in Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is why the title of this series when I started it was called uh, The Gospel According to Genesis. It's still the title of this series. Because while each of the stories and events we read together over the past year is true and historic in their own right, they also function as divinely dropped breadcrumbs that eventually end at a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And so it's good that we conclude our time in Genesis today, because next week we're going to follow those breadcrumbs to uh, Palm Sunday, uh, the one day in scriptures where Jesus is actually worshipped and praised as he ought to be. And then we're going to follow those breadcrumbs to Jesus' last night of ministry, where he wraps up his time with his disciples uh, right before his betrayal. And then the breadcrumbs will lead us from the city center, uh, from uh, Pilate's to Herod's, then back to Pilate's, and then ultimately up to a hill called Golgotha, where Jesus will experience his crucifixion, his excruciating death, um, where one righteous brother suffers the wrath of the rest of his brothers. And then the breadcrumbs will lead us from the bloody cross to a tomb where we will then celebrate a resurrection where that the father's son who is dead is now alive again. And so that's where the breadcrumbs of Genesis ultimately lead us. And so I, like my seminary professor, will also blow a gasket when people try to paint the Old Testament God as a God of wrath and the New Testament God as a God of mercy. Marcion, the heretic that I mentioned at the beginning of this series, the first person to make that distinction, I say to you now what I told you then, that he is an idiot. And so see, friends, that God's plan all along was to save the world through Jesus. See the foreshadowing and the hints and the neon signs and the divine winks and nudges all over Genesis pointing you in the direction of a New Testament Savior. 
Celebrate with me this coming Holy Week that God is not a deity of split personalities, but grace and mercy and hope and forgiveness and healing and restoration. They've all been baked into our faith from the very beginning. The core of Genesis, my friends, is the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a snake in a garden. Don't listen to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.